is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Tuesday, February 14, 2023. And today will be better than yesterday. Sarah Abbott is working from the hangar back in Bristol. The Reverend Taylor Schwink is in the pulpit. I'm Buster Oley in Montana as we speak. I'm getting on a plane in a few hours to go to Florida. Guys, guess what I was doing this morning out here? Packing up your shorts in the suitcase? Uh, well, I, I I did that yesterday. This morning, I was running the snowblower. Ah. Three inches of snow this morning, which <laughs> seemed to tee up my trip to Florida. It's supposed to be one degree later today here in Bozeman. Are you excited for the the temperature shift? Are you gonna are you a guy? Are you gonna hop in the the hotel pool? Is that a move that you pull? Well, I think you guys know me well enough to know that at heart I would rather have one degree than ninety degrees. Right. But I gotta mm-hmm. say, uh, I'm I'm happy. I'm going into warm weather. I'd say my partner Liz, she doesn't want to hear about that. <laughs> She's a little bit jelly, <laughs> huh? Yeah. She she didn't want to hear about it, Sarah. What which, which do you prefer? I am definitely. I prefer the warm weather. Yeah. So one degree, that sounds like my nightmare. Um, no, thank you. I would much rather be in Florida. <laughs> yeah, I got to make sure I get leap gas in the snowblower. That's all I'm going to say. Taylor, what about you? Yeah, I think I'm more of a cold weather guy. I do like to mix it up. I do like the pool and the beach, but uh, you know, one or the other, especially with snow on the ground, snow and cold, that's, that's my wheelhouse for sure. Yeah, but bottom line is spring training is here. The uh, regular podcast, we're picking up the schedule this week. We've got two, uh, one today, and then one on Thursday as well. we got a lot to talk about. We're going to be hearing from a lot of special guests, um, some exciting guests that we can't talk about yet, but I know Sarah's absolutely fired up about that. Uh, today, we're going to be talking with Alex Anthopoulos, who's the better, uh, head of baseball operations uh, for the Atlanta Braves, about the rule uh, determination that came down from Major League Baseball on Monday. We're going to start with this today, a bleacher tweet. Uh, Taylor, I think this is from you. There wasn't a name attached to this, right? Correct. Yeah, I, uh, you know, the bleacher tweets, hashtag bleacher tweets on Twitter. You know, they were a little light this week. I think we only had one. So I wanted to hear from you, Buster. The offseason, it's officially over. What's something fun you did, uh, maybe you and Liz together to unwind before you're going to hit the road here? And is there anything on your to-do list that's kind of left hanging that you're not going to get back to until November? Well, we went to Paris. We've talked about that. That was absolutely mm-hmm. amazing. Love doing that. Uh, the On the to-do list every week when I would start, you know, on Sunday and I'd write things I was going to do this week, get a Montana license, never happened. <laughs> it felt like every week there was something going on. What about you guys? Oh, man. Well, you're well, you're going to be an outlaw in Montana, Buster, if you don't update that uh, that license and license plate. They're going to be the state's going to be coming for you. John Dutton's going to show up at your door. The governor. <laughs> <laughs> For me, uh, I got I got some projects around the house that uh, that might slow down a little bit, you know, with baseball okay. a little more frequent. You know, doing doing the rundown late at nights. You know, that was that was a new thing for me last night. My my wife's a little more aware of uh, the baseball seasons. It's coming for sure. I know she's probably like, really. You're, you're sitting over your computer. It's ten ten o'clock at night. You're sitting over your computer. Come on, trying to watch Summer House. <laughs> you're you're thinking about baseball, right? Exactly. And and you had this in the in part of your tweet. You asked me what am I looking forward to, to seeing on Wednesday at the Blue Jays facility, where we're going to see a rules demonstration. Um, there's not not going to be anything that I, I think is going to surprise any of us that they're going to present because we've been talking about the rules changes all during the off season. But it is kind of 
the first time I'm going to get a look at the new geometry uh, of infields with the larger bases. And I'm fascinated by that. I'm fascinated also about some of the nuances they're going to tell us about, uh, you know, with the limited number of, of pickoff attempts that pitchers can have, the limited number of times they can step off. I think that's going to be cool. I think it's going to change the game dramatically. Uh, going to be talking with Alex Antopoulos about that coming up. We got the word yesterday from Jesse Rogers that Major League Baseball's competition committee has determined that in all regular season extra inning games, a runner will be placed at second base to begin the 10th inning and in every subsequent inning after that until a winner is determined. Uh, that vote, according to Jesse's reporting, was unanimous. There were also new restrictions on how teams can use position players to pitch. They can work in the ninth inning or in extra innings. And in the ninth inning, the team ahead must be up by at least 10 runs before they can use a position player. The trailing team must be down by at least eight runs before they can use a position player. Uh, Major League Baseball gave the okay for pitchers to call their own pitches with the pitch comm signals. Um, some pitchers prefer that catchers call the signals. Some pitchers, maybe like uh, you know Max Scherzer, he might prefer to, to be telling the catcher what he's gonna throw. It's just uh, each guy's a little bit different. Some of the deals that we've seen since our last podcast, uh, Christian Javier, who, of course, was part of that no-hitter in the World Series, he got an extension through 2027 for a deal for about $64 million. You Darvish and the Padres agreed to a six-year, $108 million deal. We're going to get perspective on that from Sarah Langs coming up. The St. Louis Cardinals extended the contract to President of Baseball Ops, John Mazalock. Uh, his new deal runs through 2025. The Dodgers signed veteran outfielder David Peralta to a one-year $6.5 million deal. And there's also this, Washington Nationals owner Ted Lerner passed away at age 97. Team spokesperson said Lerner died Sunday because of complications of pneumonia. Taylor, what else you got? Buster, new episode of SV Pod is in your podcast app, um, wherever you like to listen, Apple, Spotify, Overcast. Uh, the guys are talking about the Super Bowl. It's a good episode. Sarah and I produced it late last night. Check it out. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's Code Baseball. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Seam heads rejoice. This is Timmy time. Baseball is the greatest game. With Tim Kirkson. It never disappoints you. On baseball tonight. And Tim Kirkson covers baseball for ESPN. Tim, uh, spring training right around the corner. You're going to be getting on a plane, what, tomorrow? And where are you going to go first and why? 
Uh, I'm going. To, I'm going to West Palm first in order to see. I got to go see the Mets first. I have three games from the booth this spring, so I have to see the six teams that I'm going to see in those three games. So I'm going to start on the West Coast and see the uh, Mets, Astros, and, and Nationals, and then I'm going to go over to the Tampa side and see the Yankees the Red Sox and the Phillies among other teams, but those will be my first six teams. This is my 42nd spring training buster uh, as a full-time, full-time uh, beat guy and, and analyst, whatever we call me now. The first one, <laughs> I'll never forget the first one, 1982 is a full-time beat writer covering the Rangers. Mickey Rivers, one of my favorite people of all time, about three pe- weeks into spring training Asked me if he could borrow $2,000. <laughs> I said, Mick, <laughs> Mickey was making $450,000 a year. I said, Mick, I'm making $14,000 a year. I don't have $2,000. Not on me, not to my name, nowhere. He asked me to borrow money in his first spring. It was great. So what, I mean, what, I mean, I got to follow up on that one. So what well, did you tell him and what was, what was his reaction when you, when you turned this down? What was his reaction? Well, I told him the truth again. I don't have $2,000 if I had it. I couldn't give it to you because I don't have it. And he laughed out loud and walked away. And and then a couple of the veteran players looked at me and said, Tim, whatever you do, don't loan him any money. He'll never give it back. And I repeat, Mickey was one of my favorite people I ever covered, one of the warmest, kindest guys and a really good player. But I guess he had lost a gambling debt. I don't know. But that was typical Mickey River. You never did knew if he was serious. Never knew if he was serious or not. Did, did that ever come up again in your subsequent conversation? Never, never. It was the first and only time he ever asked me for money, which was good. So what are you looking forward to seeing in Mets camp? Because uh, I, I, I personally enjoy the visuals, those first-day visuals of Xander Bogarts in a Padres uniform, Carlos Correa, you know, back with the Twins, uh, Trey Turner with the Phillies. What are you looking forward to seeing in the Mets camp? Well, I guess it's fairly obvious, but I'm looking forward to seeing Justin Verlander in a Mets uniform, having just won the Cy Young, having just won the World Series, and now going to the National League. And he's joined up with Max Scherzer, who was teammate in Detroit. And to me, the Mets are really good. But the only way they're not going to be really good is if the two late 30s pitchers on that team aren't really good. And I fully expect them both to be good. But to me, it's just another fascinating development that Verlander is on the Mets, reunited with Scherzer, and they have a really good team. Yeah, I remember, and you and I talked about this a little bit in the fall, I remember when Verlander agreed to terms, I had people in baseball reach out to me and say, yeah, he and Scherzer, they're not not really fond of each other. And I'm like, that doesn't matter. Like, that doesn't matter in baseball. You know, it's not like a wide receiver and a quarterback who don't get along that great. You get two guys who are completely independent of each other in the work. And on top of that, they're both great professionals. Right. And if I let's assume for a second, they, they aren't best friends, which I didn't they are even not know best that. friends, Tim. Yeah. All right. Let's assume that then maybe they go out and try to top the other each time out. All right. Scherzer pitched a three hitter. I'm going to pitch a two hitter. And maybe that is a good thing for the Mets. Who knows? Yeah. Well, one thing that uh, is interesting coming off of that, uh, you know, the signing of Verlander and all the money that they spent, 
Uh, I think that's reflected in what we got from Pakoda, the baseball prospectus uh, win projections for 2023, and they're absolutely fascinating. You know, there's sometimes you get these and you go, uh-huh, yeah, that's about what we figured. The two most interesting projections, as our friend Paul Hembikides points out, are the uh, projected wins at the top of each of the American League East and the National League East. There's a bigger gap, Tim, than I think that maybe you would expect. In the National League East, the Dakota win projections has the Mets for 97.2 victories and winning the division fairly handily over the Braves, who are projected at 91.8, the Phillies at 89.5. In the uh, American League East, they've got the Yankees projected at 99.3, which is, by the way, the highest number of any team in baseball. And then they have the Toronto Blue Jays at 89.6. Any of those numbers jump out at you? Yeah, I don't see the Mets beating the Phillies by ten games or whatever it was. Um, yeah, I really About like. Games. Yeah, I really like what the Phillies did. Adding Trey Turner, the way they upgraded their bullpen, Taiwan Walker to the rotation. I know they're going to miss, you know, Bryce Harper for a while, but I loved what I saw from that team in the postseason. Not just getting there, but the way they played the game and the way they played for Rob Thompson. Phillies are not eight games behind the Mets, and I really like the Mets. I can see them winning the division, but I don't see the Phillies that far behind. And I like what the Yankees did with Carlos Rodon and, of course, getting Judge back, but I don't see them that much better than the Blue Jays or the Rays. I mean, Toronto's on the way up still with some of the things they did in the offseason. Those players are getting better every year. I mean, I really like the Yankees to win the division, but not by that much. Yeah, and I think Toronto's rotation is better than what people are giving them credit for. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Um, their pitching was really good last year. And, you know, if Jose Barrios bounces back and has a, a decent year, a much better year than last year, then suddenly their pitching is is awfully good, if you ask me. So I, I like that team a lot. I think it's better than it was last year. And that was a playoff team last year. All right. A couple of other interesting projections in the National League Central uh, I think you and I would have expected that, yeah, the Cardinals will be projected for, you know, a comfortable winner in that division, given the changes that have been happening. Tim, the Brewers, according to Baseball Prospectus, projected to win the National League Central, 87.6 wins, just about, uh, you know, running neck and neck with the Cardinals at 87.5. I can't see it. I know the Brewers have really good pitching, but I can't see them beating the Cardinals. What about you? Yeah, I don't see it either. Look, I love the Brewers pitching. You ru you run those first three guys out. You can beat anybody. And their bullpen, despite losing Josh Hader, trading him, is still pretty darn good. I just don't see them scoring enough runs, which has been the problem the last several years. And they've made some upgrades, but I, I just don't see it. I think the Cardinals... I wouldn't say clearly are the best team in the in the central, but I I think they're the best team, and I don't think the Brewers are the best team. And the Dakota projections have the Cubs at seventy seven point one wins. I agree with that. I think that they're going to be one of the more improved teams this year. Although I don't think they're going to make the playoffs. You know, the pitching and defense that they built into that lineup is going to be interesting. I think this is going to surprise you also, Tim. What they have in the American League West? Okay, the Astros. Winning the division, 96 win, 96.2 wins, which I think is fair. Guess who they've got finishing second? Not the Mariners. They've got the Angels at 85.4 wins. 
They've got Seattle at 83 wins. I think among all the Dakota projections, Seattle at 83 feels really, really light to me. What do you think? Yeah, I've got uh, the Mariners finishing second. I've got them going to the playoffs. Again, I got a good look at them in the postseason, especially and down the stretch last year, Buster having done their games. Uh, I really like their defense. I really like the way they play the game. Luis Castillo for a full season. Their pitching is pretty darn good, especially by a different place in the bullpen and the rotation. They're going to win more than 83 games. And the Astros should have the most wins projected of any team in the major leagues this year. I like where they are at 96, but if you ask me who's going to win the most games in the major leagues this year, I think it's the Astros, not the Yankees. Are you going to pick the Astros to go back to back first team since it's 98, 2000 Yankees? Well, (laughs) we know about these projections, Buster. What is the point of doing this in the middle of February? Yes, if I have to choose, in a month I'm going to have to choose, I will pick the Astros to win the World Series again, and that will mean absolutely nothing because this is the beauty of baseball. We're not supposed to be right in the middle of February. Okay, and here's another projection which uh, made me scratch my head a little bit. They've got the Rangers winning 77.9. So in that division, Rangers at 77.9, Mariners at 83, Angels at 85.4, Astros at 96.2. That is a stacked division. Tim, they've got the Oakland Athletics winning 62.8. I'm just going to say no chance. What do you think? It's going to be hard to win 62 games with – all the moves that they've made, and mostly as you just applied in that division, the the Astros. And I know that the new schedule is not going to mean 19 against Seattle, 19 against Houston, but that is a very good division. Again, I really like what the Rangers did. I really like what the Angels have done. That doesn't mean they're making the playoffs, but they're both going to be demonstrably better than last year and the 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 A's won't have an easy game in the division all year and it's going to be hard to get to 62 games 62 wins when you're playing in the AL West yesterday Jesse Rogers broke the story that Major League Baseball is going to place have runners placed at second base in extra innings now during the regular season we're going back to the COVID rules in other words uh, and you were the first person I thought of because you are, you have, Tim, are, are as old school now, I think, as there is uh, in in this conversation about the rule changes. And I know that probably makes you cringe, putting a runner at second base in regular season games. Yeah, look, I, I'm old and I'm old school and I'm all for almost all the changes that we have for this year. But this is the one that really bothers me. I, I'm sorry, Buster. Some of the greatest games I've ever covered have lasted 15 innings. Some of the greatest games of all time have lasted 18 innings. I was there for the first two. I was there for the first three postseason games that lasted 18 innings. I thought they were great. Look, I know we're trying to keep the players healthier. I just don't think it's too much to ask for someone to play 15 innings in one game. And if it's just because it takes too long or we have to work harder in the media for it, then I think we have to work harder in the media for it for one day. It doesn't happen very often. I think we should play until somebody wins the game, and I am still totally against putting a runner at second to start an extra inning of a tie game, and I am truly amazed how many people in the sport, including those who wear uniforms, are all for it. And I understand the rationale. 
I'm sorry. I just think we should ask our players to do more once in a while rather than less. We've got 90 seconds. Alex Anthopoulos is coming up after you. I'll be asking about this as well. This is about money, Tim, at its heart, right? It's about it's about injury risk and it's about money. Yes, and I, I understand we need to keep our players healthier. But if you're a world-class athlete and one of the best players ever and you need to play 14 innings one day, then I think it's okay to ask them to play 14 innings. If you have to tell that bullpen guy you're going to give us another inning today, I think that's a good thing in a way. It teaches these guys <laughs> they need more from me. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. And the last 30 seconds, I'm glad they put in these restrictions against the use of position players uh, in one-sided games because I thought it was starting to get ridiculous. What about you? Buster, when I first started covering, when a position player cover a pitched in a game, it was like the coolest thing ever. I always, especially at Sports Illustrated, I called those guys every time they did this because it happened like three or four times a year and hilarious stories came out of it. Now it's way too much and it's not necessary anymore. It's time to tell a reliever, you're taking one for the team today. You're going to pitch an extra inning so we don't have to pitch our backup infielder. I used to love it. It became way too big of a deal, and I'm glad they're putting a restriction on it. Tim, thank you very much. Good to see you. Had, uh, next time I see you, you're going to be very tan. Right. <laughs> I'll see you in spring training, Buster. Can't wait. Alex Anthopoulos is the head of baseball operations for the Atlanta Braves. And, and Alex, we were just talking with Tim Kirchin about you know, the word that came down yesterday uh, about placing a runner at second base in extra innings. And, you know, I, I mentioned to him, when you get right down to it, uh, it, it comes down to money, about keeping players healthy, about keeping them off the injured list, not keeping them on the field that long. What was your perspective when you saw that this uh, this rule was adopted seemingly permanently? Yeah, I mean, look, I think everyone wants the same thing. There's no ideal solution. And during the season, you know, you're playing sometimes 10 games in a row, 20 games in a row, going 14 innings, 15 innings, 16 innings. It just crushes your bullpen, crushes, you you know, your, your team. You see guys that'll pitch uh, in extra inning games, two or three innings, and they know they're, if they're out of options, they're getting DFA'd the next day. Or if they have options, they're getting sent down. And it's, as a front office, we've talked about it even with players. It's tough when you know, someone's done their job, but you need an arm for the next day because you don't have a long guy. And players will tell you the same thing. They know that they're likely, they're out there on the mound and they're starting the third inning um, to make sure they protect the bullpen. And they know I'm probably getting sent out after the game. We're getting DFA because we have to protect the team. So if this is what ultimately leads to um, avoiding that, avoiding player injuries and being able to keep guys on the roster longer, um, you know, it definitely feels like the best solution at this time. Could those, I mean, just from your perspective, if you can describe, you know, as a game uh, under the old rules would go in extra innings and you saw the potential of a 10, 15 inning game, how much chaos would that create day to day for what you were trying to do? Great word to use. Definitely chaos. You're thinking about it during the game. You're starting to talk about it in the sometimes the, because you know how your bullpen's been used leading up to the game. Um, you're aware of maybe how many, you know, sometimes guys don't appear in a game, but you know that they've gotten up in the bullpen three in a row, four in a row, and, you know, you're going to need to give them a blow and have them not pitch. But, you know, you want to talk about chaos. When I was in Toronto and our affiliate was in Las Vegas uh, and we had a game the next day, um, we knew we had to make decisions by like the third inning or the fourth inning. And we had to, because we had to get guys on flights. 
And we basically had to make decisions ahead of time before we could even talk to the manager and so on, uh, because we had to get guys on flights to get here the next day and so on. So um, you're always planning that out. You're always trying to think ahead. You know that the manager and the coaches, they're worried about the game at that time. And you need to make decisions, whether the minor league team's on the road, you have to get them here. What if it's a day game the next day? So you have to start to map things out, start to, to look at flights ahead of time, make sure there's availability and so on. Um, so you're spending sometimes three or four innings trying to make, you know, trying to make a choice or have options for what you're going to do the next day. And then after the game's over, you go down and talk to the manager and he hasn't even had a time to even consider any of this stuff. And, and also the remaining coaches as well. And you present them, Hey, here are three or four options we have. But at that point you've got a flight reserved, you have things ready. Uh, but it is, it's very chaotic. That's a big part of these jobs. Yeah, it is amazing to think that you're essentially planning out a potential uh, pitching staff for Brian Snitker as the game is going on. If you go, especially a 10th, 11th, 12th inning, because he doesn't, you know, he's not sitting there thinking with the time uh, to, to think about that and to know who's available down the minor leagues, who's the best fit. Um, yeah, so I hear that a lot from folks, uh, you know, your colleagues, your peers about how, what these extra inning games can do. Um, I'm going to Dunedin on Wednesday. They're going to give us some rules prep uh, for broadcasters, for media members. Uh, I'm curious about you and what you guys have planned for spring. Are you going to do a formal rules prep, or are you just going to play the games and then have the players, you know, a lot of them having played the minor leagues under some of these rules, they might be accustomed to it, but are you going to do anything more formal with your guys? Hey, we've we've bought a lot, a lot of clocks, um, for bullpens and things like that. So just guys can get accustomed to the pace. Uh, but look, I think a lot of it will be just letting it, you know, we have time last year. Everyone remembers last year was a three week spring training. So we have time, we have time to work through things, to talk through things. Um, there's been a lot of internal discussion about it, I think, but once we get together, I think it'll be just an ongoing conversation and continuing to work through things. So, um, you know, the one thing is all 30 clubs are going through the same thing. So we'll get there in the end. There'll they'll be growing pains like anything else. Um, you look at Pitchcom, for example, last year, we didn't embrace it on opening day. We just we made sure to take our time to feel, feel good about it and incorporating it into bullpens and so on. And once the players felt good about it, we started to in- incorporate it. So with these rule changes, we know that they're going to start from day one. Uh, players are aware of it and you know we're grateful that we have a long spring to be able to work through all of it is there any particular rule change that you look at and say boy the impact is going to be greater than what people anticipate and and i asked that having you know when i presented that to other folks some of your peers have told me that the 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 bigger bases might be have a bigger impact than what we expect yeah i mean that's the one that i don't know that it's bigger than we expect because i think everyone's expecting there to be an impact so um, I don't think we're um, we're not. I think the anticipation is pretty fair across the board. I don't think we're going to be surprised. I will be curious at the end of the year what comes out of this because there'll absolutely be something that we missed or we didn't consider or something that we adjust to. But I do think throwing over the you know the larger bases and so on. I think that will be the most impactful. Obviously, there's so much discussion about the lack of shifts and how that's going to impact things. I'm curious how that's going to play out. Um, but, I mean, look, even, you know, the game's been played for a long time. You know, we don't shift on every single player, so there's plenty of times we don't have a shift. So um, a lot of people are, you know, trying to throw the four-seamer up, trying to get balls in the air. 
Um, people have gone away from sinker slider guys on the mound. Not to say people don't get ground balls, but I think the game's been geared towards up in the zone. Regardless, people trying to hit home runs, anyways. So, um, but I, I, but I would say to your your question, my anticipation is, I expect the bigger bases. I expect teams to run more. Um, I expect to be that that to be more a point of emphasis going forward. I was talking with Tim about the Dakota win projections, which come out every year, and it's one of uh, you know several different systems we'll hear projections from. Uh, they've got you at 91.8 wins. They've got the Mets at 97.2 wins, the Phillies at 89 and change. How much do you like to look at those, Alex? Because And I'm assuming you guys do your own projections internally. Yeah, we do. I'm always curious. Our, our guys will do stuff, and I'll always challenge them. I, and, again, I um, it's not that I'm glass half empty, but I think – in these jobs, I think there's some value to be in that way because it keeps you on your toes. And I think worrying and trying to think about, you know, where you don't have enough depth and so on is a good thing. Um, so I spend a lot of time, you know, trying to think about having injuries or guys not performing and so on. Uh, but I'm always curious about it. When we have a good win projection total, I'm always skeptical of it. And I'm always asking why and trying to compare and so on. And I've, I've seen all of them, but I can tell you at least my first three years, I think, of being in Atlanta, I think we were probably projected to finish in third place or fourth place, at least third, I would say. And obviously we won the division and things worked out. So um, I am aware of it. I think we're a good team, but I also think that that the Phillies and the Mets are really good teams as well. I think Miami's gotten a lot better. And obviously the Nats are in a re- rebuild and they're ultimately going to get there. They've done that with the management team they had there. They've been very successful over time. So um, my view of it is just get to the playoffs. Of course, you want to win the division, no doubt about that. But just get in. Winning the division does not guarantee anything. Uh, We've won the division for five years that I've been here. We've advanced past the first round twice. So it, it certainly doesn't guarantee anything. Um, But I just want to get in, and, and I think the NL is going to be tough, as it always is. Yeah, uh, the Phillies are an example of that last year. You know, you guys were an example of it the year before, uh, going no on and, and playing deep into the postseason. Uh, when you hear ninety-one point eight, what was your initial reaction in your, you know, in, in uh, when you heard that number? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like in my mind for some reason. I've always, I always view as like eighty-five-ish um, is where you want to be because then obviously there's a randomness and things can get better and so on and. I think the Phillies were the last team to qualify at 87 wins last year. I believe that that was the amount. So um, I think as long as you're somewhere in in the mid 80s, you know you've got a shot. And uh, look, it's nice to be have a 90 or 91, 92, and so on. You know, it's just that things can change so fast, right? Guys have bad years. We don't expect guys get hurt. I know all that's baked into it, um, but I just don't. I don't put a ton of stock into it. I'm, I'm curious, um, but we don't make any predictions. I, I don't take a look at our internal projections and say, wow, we're a win and a half behind the Mets or we're two wins behind the Phillies. And why don't we go sign a two win player or a three win player and try to nudge that amount over. It just doesn't work that way. So um, I think we've got a good club. I think we've got a competitive club, but I go into every season worrying and thinking about how we're going to get back to the playoffs and worrying about how we're going to get back to the playoffs. Um, and I guess I would say anything that's more uh, from a positive standpoint with our win projection, I'll probably play the least amount. I mean, I just won't put a ton of weight into it because I'm, I'm wired to worry. And I think it will just do a much, a much better job as a baseball operations group if we're expecting the worst and we're just preparing for it. 
So the Yankees are kind of in a, you know, theoretically a, a parallel situation to you guys at shortstop, uh, you know, and they're uh, Brian Cashman and the way that he's presented that is, is that it's a wide open competition. They're going to be open-minded to see what they see with Dan to Swanson moved on Von Grissom, uh, you know, being a guy that you guys have talked about this winter, what's your perspective about the shortstop position? Are you going in saying, Hey, you know, we're committed to, to trying to make this work with him. Or are you uh, going in? We'll see what we see. I think it's, we'll see what we see. And then our manager will make the call there. And even at, you know, he was, and it, we're not committing to anything at, at this point. I think the biggest thing is, look, you're not, I've never viewed it that you're replacing an individual player. And really when you get down to it from season to season, you're replacing the, the season that the player had. So, um, you know, we, we had won 101 games last year. Dansby Swanson was a six win player. That's not to say you're expecting people to reel off six wins each year. Obviously they might get hurt. They might not have a strong year, but that doesn't mean that you were expecting to come close to that, but maybe other areas of the ball club can make up for that. So I fully expect us to not be at strong at shortstop in 2023 as we are in 20. That's almost impossible to do to, to, to get what we got in 2022. Uh, that That's not to say that we can't still be a very good team and a playoff team. And maybe we make, make up some of that talent and some, some of the, some of that war in some of the other areas of the ball club. So, um, you know, Snit has talked about, Hey, I might split the job, you know, we, it, but it's going to, it's ultimately going to be going with a hot hand. And this has happened over the course of time. With our club, you go in with certain plans. Somebody isn't playing as well. Someone steps up and plays well. You take Contreras for us last year. There was no expectation that he would get the lion's share of the H at bats, but he played so well that he did. Or when we traded for Adam Duvall, he was going to be a platoon player um, and ultimately became an an everyday player for us. So Vaughn Grissom, Orlando Arcia will compete, uh, will absolutely use spring training to make a determination to how they look. But that might change a week into the season, two weeks in the season, three weeks in the season. And we're just going to go with a hot hand and uh, whatever gives us the best chance to win. If that's someone getting full-time starts, if that's someone splitting time, uh, we're just going to try to put the best team we can out, out on, on the field. But we understand that we will not be as strong at shortstop, but hopefully in other areas we'll, we'll improve from where we were in 2022. Last one before you go, Dana Brown leaves uh, your front office, becomes the general manager of the Houston Astros the last couple of years when I've called you, you know, about, uh, hey, where did Michael Harris come from? Where did Spencer Strider come from? Uh, I remember you once saying to me, look, I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but that was Dana Brown. Uh, you know, how did you, first off, I'd love to hear how you got the word that he got this job. And and how do you feel emotionally about that when that happens? Someone who you obviously trusted, have a longstanding relationship with, leaves the team. Yeah, so I'm, I've been with him a long time. He gave me, he's the first person that truly believed in me as a scout, as an evaluator. We were, you know, he gave me my first full-time job with the Montreal Expos. He was named scouting director in spring training um, and of 2002. And uh, he hired me as a scouting coordinator. I knew, didn't know a thing about, uh, I, you know, I'd been trying to work on evaluating and scouting and so on. And, uh, but I didn't know anything about the administrative side of the draft. And um, he gave me that opportunity and I ran with it. And he was the first person to say, look, I think you've got an eye for talent. I think you could really evaluate and scout. And he didn't owe me a thing. And uh, he had me go out and see some of the top players in, in the draft. He really believed in me. And uh, obviously I got to work with him very closely and see, I have a long uh, 
yeah, I, I've got so much experience with him in terms of his evaluations and knowing how he scouts and evaluates and the guys he's got right and wrong and so on. So it's not a coincidence that when I got the GM job in Toronto, he was a scouting director with the, with the Nats at the time that I brought him over. And then ultimately I brought him with me to Atlanta. Uh, so look, obviously a massive loss for us. Uh, we're not going to be able to replace him. We don't plan to replace him. You know, the job that he had was a job for him and him alone. Perry Manassi in the same way when he left to go be the Angels GM, we didn't replace him specifically. You know, that exact role he had was for him and him alone. But what we've had is people fill in some of the gaps, so we've spread the work around. So it's a huge loss for us. He's a massive part of our success. At the same time, I'm so excited for him and his family. Um, I'm just he's so so deserving of the the opportunity. And uh, look, I want to see these guys have great success. So. If anything, it's a really uh, it, it's really an honor that you get to work with people that, that get a chance to go on to other clubs. So my hope and role and and really goal is that we hopefully continue to lose a ton of employees, that they continue to do better for themselves and get great opportunities and so on. As hard as it is for us to lose those employees, um, I'm excited that we've been able to hire really good people that other teams want. How did you get the word that he was leaving? Oh, so he um, he called me. So I think it was announced on Thursday uh, Thursday afternoon or morning. Wednesday night, he called me and told me he had received a call from Jim Crane um, and that he was flying. Um, he's going to fly the next morning to get there and to work things out in terms of an agreement and um, and hopefully, hopefully have a press conference at that time and so on. And I remember telling him, well, you're, you're going to fly out there without any – assurances other than they're going to offer you the position and you know true dana has been scouting his whole life he said i've been i've been rained out plenty of times i'm not worried about it so um <laughs> he knew that uh he was going to get there and you know it was an opportunity he was going to be treated fairly and so on and he went out there w- with his wife they, they got everything ironed out and uh i know from there you know the minute it got announced his phone was going to explode and he's going to be drinking out of a fire hose but as late as it is i actually think this is a pretty good time for him uh, just because the off season's over and it's just a matter of getting ready for spring training and getting ready for the drafts and the trade deadline. All right, Alex, thanks for doing this. Uh, we'll see you in the next few days. All right. Really appreciate it. Dogs are an important part of our lives and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus Chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one and done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. 
Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter, producer for MLB.com. Sarah, how are you doing today? I am doing great. How are you, Buster? Yeah, your days are going to be better because, like, every day now, you're just going to be seeing the, the information flowing out of Arizona, flowing out of Florida. Spring training has arrived. Guys are taking batting practice. They're throwing bullpens. They're getting ready. And they're looking over these Pagoda wind projections and Taylor, I'm going to bring you in here. You know, you came in today. You're excited for the start of spring training. You got the the uh, ornithologically correct Orioles cap on as mm-hmm. we tape uh, the podcast today. And they've got the Orioles projected for 73 wins. How'd you feel about that? Seems a little light buster. Seems a little bit disrespectful to my boys. I don't really like it. I think that I don't. I haven't decided if uh, they're going to be a playoff team yet, but I mean, they should be around 500 at the very least. If not, that the season is an abject disaster and uh, lots of things must be reconsidered. Yeah, Sarah, what did you think when you saw the Orioles win projection? Yeah, Because I have was, a distinct feeling about it. That was definitely one that stood out to me. You know, even if I didn't have a number in mind, I was expecting them to finish fourth in the division with the Red Sox and last. And the way it is, it has the Red Sox with 81 wins and the Orioles at 73.8, as you noted. I mean, I don't know if they can be exactly where they were last year, only because I expect the Yankees to be better. But we have a balanced schedule. You're not playing in your division as much, so totally possible. Yeah, see, when I saw the number, I thought it was fair, and, I, and I'll give you my perspective as a Vikings fan. As you guys know, the Vikings had this crazy season, and I think that the statistic was they were 11-0 and in games yeah. that were decided by, you know, one touchdown or less. And my, I felt like even watching the team the whole year, like, you know what, they were a little bit lucky. Uh, and I know from talking with the Orioles people during the course of the year, and I'm talking about people who are in the clubhouse – they felt a little bit like, boy, it's working out for us great. And here's the part that I, you know, saw during the the offseason. Taylor, I'll start with you on this. You know, they had this terrific season. I think Adley Rutschman arguably is the best catcher in baseball. He's not number one, he's number two. Gunnar Henderson to me is the easy pick for rookie of the year. But I'm still waiting to see that like ownership actually cares about winning games this year. They did almost nothing to improve this team that took a big step forward last year. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the success last year was, you know, a good start, you know, good front half of the year from the starting rotation. The bullpen was very consistent. Um, The bats overperformed in the first half of the year and noticeably dropped off in the second. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of holes on this team. You're right. They didn't do a whole lot to improve it. Um, You know, they bolstered the starting pitching a touch, I guess. So we'll see how that goes. We'll see how the young guys come up through the minors. And I don't know. It's You're right. I, I don't know that 73 is a number I feel comfortable about, but like it, it certainly could go sideways. And, you know, you've got John Means, you know, his return looming out there, maybe mid-season. That, that could help them out a lot. Yeah. Um, they could trade some of these young guys for another pitcher, for another They're bat. not going to do that, and they will they not could. do that. They're not going to blow up their rebuilding won't. plan. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's a little frustrating. It's it's weird. I'm frustrated with the offseason, but excited just to uh, to watch them play and see how see how some of these guys fare. 
Yeah, I, I think myself, uh, and I'm going to go through this, and we're going to be hearing as we go through these team capsules, uh, the projections from Sarah, the projections from Hembo. I'm thinking the Orioles are like 75, 76. So I think it's higher than 73. Sarah, do you got a sense of kind of where you're going to land on that? Yeah, I agree with that. Again, for me, it's a little bit more about where they place in the division compared yes. to the Red Sox. And I don't see this big of a wins gap between those two teams. Again, this is saying 81 and 73 as that difference. I think they'll be much closer probably in that 76-ish range, 76, 78 for one and the other. But uh, I haven't come up with my exact projection yet. Okay, let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is six. So speaking of the Orioles, this is perfect. Uh, You know, it's funny. We do the whole season. I research everything (laughs) that comes through my mind. And then sometimes in the middle of February, I see a tweet about how Jorge Mateo and Cedric Mullins finished 1-2 in the American League in stolen bases. And I realized, hey, I never researched that. That happened last day of the season. So much was going on that I didn't find context. So... On February 14th, we get the context for something that happened technically on October 5th. So they were the sixth set of teammates to be 1-2 in their league in stolen bases in the expansion era, which goes back to 1961. With Adalberto Mondesi and Whit Merrifield back in 2020 for the Royals, Before that, it was the 1992 Expos with Marquise Grissom and Delano DeShields. Before that, the 1978 Pirates with Omar Moreno and Frank Tavares. Before that, the 1971 Royals with Amos Otis and Freddie Patek. And then in 1962, Maury Wills and Willie Davis. And that one's really fun. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think the difference in stolen bases between those two, despite being one, two in the National League, was about 70 stolen bases. Number two. Number two is also going to be six because I didn't think that through. So we've been talking about six-year deals over the last few days because you Jarvis signed his third six-year deal in the major. So there have been 33 contracts um, since the late 90s for pitchers that were at least six years. That's how far back MLB trade rumors have this contract data. So you Jarvis is the only guy to sign three different six-year deals. And they've been with three different clubs and there's only two guys to even sign two six-year deals as pitchers uh, and it's Steven Strasburg and Zach Greinke but both of those involved opting out early in the contract so he's the only guy to actually play these out and you and I were talking about this toward the end of last week but he's also the oldest pitcher to sign a contract of at least six years. Number one. Number one is eight. So Vinny Pascatino of the Royals, I guess we're talking a lot about them uh, today, 
was one of eight players last year with at least 250 plate appearances and more walks than strikeouts. And in this day and age, that's really become a good marker of good place discipline because we see so many strikeouts. So if you're able to work more walks than strikeouts, that tends to be a really good marker. So the other guys were Juan Soto, Stephen Kwan, Alejandro Kirk, Yandy Diaz, Alex Bregman, Michael Brantley, and Luis Arise. So that's a really, really good list to be on in your debut season. And then if we take a look at what he did in his last 39 games, that was from August 5th onward, he hit 360 from August 5th onward. That was second in the major behind only Jeff McNeil among guys with 150 plate appearances. And he had a 182 way to runs created plus in that span, tied for fourth behind Aaron Judge, Albert Bowles, and Mike Trout. So that was a really good debut season, especially in those last 40 or so games. Yeah, 35 walks in 72 games. 34 strikeouts, 35 walks, 34 strikeouts, a 383 on base percentage. You know, Sarah, when I look at young players, those are the first numbers I look at. You know, I read about minor leaguers. This guy's a prospect. I go right to walks and strikeouts because I, I think that says so much. And I'm looking at him, and I'm not pretending like I'm a swing doctor or something like that. I'm not comparing this, but that sort of approach reminds me of a young Joey Votto. And I'm really curious when Vinny comes up, I'm going to ask him about how he learned that approach. Um, but I'm curious, is that how you look at hitters too, or do you look at something different? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, especially for young hitters. I look at any marker of plate discipline. And on base, as you mentioned, looking at walks, looking at strikeouts is a really good place to start because we've seen so many guys come up and have unreal power but strike out a ton of the time and often they're able to make it work when you're striking out a ton in your first season in the majors it can often be a harbinger of not great things to come but when guys are able to hold their own again seeing major league pitching for the first time and they have plate discipline in the minors and it carries over to the majors that tends to really bear out Yeah, Adley Rutschman last year was an example that commanding the strike zone, whether you're a pitcher or a hitter, is a a big deal. All right, Sarah, thanks for doing this. Thanks so much for having me, Buster. Hey, guys, Vinny Pasquantino from the Kansas City Royals. We're here in Arizona. The Super Bowl's happening here soon. I'm about a mile away from the stadium. Couldn't be more excited for the game on Sunday. The Chiefs are in it. Kansas City, we want to hear you loud and proud. Let's go, Chiefs. Yeah, Vinny, you were right. Like, you called it, basically. The Chiefs are going to win. What was that like to watch? Yeah, it was great. It's uh, really cool for the city, and there's a little bit more buzz around camp right now for us, knowing that it was right down the street from us, too, and that we're getting going now, so... Couldn't be happier for the Chiefs. I mean, that's just unbelievable. So, uh, you know, in your first uh, season in the big leagues, how much time did you, how much interaction did you wind up having with some of the Chiefs? Uh, zero. Uh, it's just because of how much, like when, right when we're finishing their beginning. So they've got a bunch of stuff going on. They were, I believe they were in training camp when we left. I, or the season may have just started. But, yeah, pretty much none just because everything is really separate because we never have games on the same day. 
So zero, but it was still exciting to watch from a distance. Well, and I'm sure that there's going to be a day when uh, Pat Mahomes will show up and throw out a first pitch and, you know, a team that he's part owner of. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm yeah. curious that you as an athlete to see what he did in the Super Bowl, uh, you know, what did you see in him? Yeah, just incredible. And But anybody who has been watching the Chiefs over the past few years has come to expect that now. So he only threw for like 189 yards or something like that, which if you were to look at that from afar, it'd be like, wow, he had a tough game. But then you see he was three touchdowns, like 21 for 27. It was just fantastic. So, you know, he's definitely a quarterback that teams win because of, and he's just a really special talent. Yeah, and the Royals, when they won the World Series in 2015, to see the turnout – uh, you know, it's not as big of a city as, say, New York or Los Angeles, but the turnout, it was so passionate, I remember. And it feels like that, that it's the same way with the Chiefs in Kansas City. Yeah, I, I want to say in 2015, every single starter for the Royals got voted to the All-Star game or something like that. <laughs> uh, I, it just It's really cool how the fans treat us, especially when both teams are winning. So we're, you know, we're trying to get that back on the Royals side of things, and that's what we're working for. So you look like it's following you in social media, uh, which is V Pasquantino, your last name on Twitter at uh, V Pasquantino. Uh, you had a blast. It seemed like it was Super Bowl week. Yeah, yeah it was I, awesome. I, I, yeah. So tell me about going on Radio Row. Yeah. So I went to Radio Row. Um, I do a spot with Radio 610 out in Kansas City every week to talk about the NFL. Um, and they brought me, me and Michael Massey, our second baseman, we went to we went down to the convention center in Phoenix where they were doing radio row. And it was just really cool seeing just the circus of it all. Uh, just for the one week, how much, how much craziness happens for the Super Bowl was insane. So being able to see the different shows in person and just seeing NFL players walk around different media members that you, you know, you see on TV all the time. It was really, it was just really cool. And then to parlay that into the waste management open, uh, the golf tournament out here, which is just basically a party watching golf. Uh, that was unbelievable and then the next day to have the Super Bowl it's just uh it's a crazy week I, I'm not sure how Phoenix held everything but they did a nice job at Radio Row tell me like a fan moment for you when you saw somebody you're like oh my god they're so and so so it's really funny that the biggest one that we had was when Dan Graziano walked by uh Michael Massey I guess like every morning watches uh get up and first take and he's always on those shows so he, for him, he we were in the middle of doing an interview and he just stopped talking. It was just like, that's Dan Graziano right there. So for us, like that was that was the one, which was really funny. And he ended up standing like a little bit behind us, but he could definitely see that we were talking about him. So that was a little awkward, but you know, we got we got through it. Okay, here's the funny thing. I worked with Dan Graziano on the Yankee beat 25 years ago, okay, <laughs> covering the Yankees when I was at the New York Times. I think he was at the, the, the Newark paper at uh -huh. that time uh, covering for them. So did he come over? Did you guys get a chance to say hi, or was, or was he too nervous? No, we were, we were too starstruck to uh, go bother him. So we, <laughs> we, we left him alone and then just, you know, let it be. Okay, so I've talked to players who played in celebrity golf tournaments, and they say that they get far more nervous than, say, standing in a box in front of a you know ballpark of forty thousand people. What was that? Oh like? yeah, oh yeah. Just because, just because, like that's what we do. It's it's our job. It's what we've been training for forever. So getting out outside of that comfort zone is terrifying, especially because we're supposed to be good at everything, so to speak, which I am not. So when you, when you go do something that you're not good at, it's just absolutely terrifying. So how did you do like first tee? Like, cause no, you no, want to get I the first one down the middle. 
I didn't play. I just watched. I was just oh, there to I, watch. I thought it. I saw a video of you t- t- hitting off a tee last week. No, no, no. Nope, nope. Didn't get out there. I would have I would have been terrified. I probably would have hit a fan or something right next to the tee box. It would have just been <laughs> it would have been a bad scene for everybody. So I just stick away from that. Okay. Tell me about your fan moment from that uh tournament that you were like, wow, that's cool. It, just seeing the craziness when guys would hit a long putt or get close to the group, like close to the hole off a tee shot, just seeing the place go nuts. For me, that was just the craziest part. Cause you're used to watching golf and it's quiet and you're not allowed to make any noise. And then just seeing, I think the day that I went, there was like 400,000 people at the golf course. So it was just a madhouse. It was insane. Wow. Uh, and it was a ton of fun. Like going yeah, was, around. I was expecting to be there for like two hours. And I believe I stayed for like, I was there for seven hours. I want to say like, it was just, I was there all day long. It was incredible. All right. How exciting is it to go to spring training this year? You know, having gotten your first taste of the major leagues. Yeah, it's definitely different. That's for sure. Um, just kind of like knowing what I need to do to get ready. And, but other than that, nothing's really changed. It's just the same thing of just how can I be ready for opening day? Um, and just be the best that I can. So right now, technically spring hasn't started. We're still in early camp. So we've got stuff going on at 10 AM, um, which I found out this morning. I'm not on West coast time. I'm on, I'm on uh, Arizona time, I guess. Arizona doesn't, doesn't change time. So I thought I was going to be late to the interview, but then we worked it out. Uh, so yeah, I'm just ready to get it rolling. And this is always the most exciting time of the year because it's kind of just when you get right back into it. So the nerves are going, anxiety's going a little bit, but in a good way. So we're all excited to get it going. So uh, we were talking before about how your numbers jump out for a young player, more walks than strikeouts in your first 72 games in the big leagues. Uh, that is something that has distinguished you as you've riven, uh, risen through the sport. How, where did, how was that ingrained in you? Cause as you know, there are players who basically, well, they'll be free swingers and they're never going to be someone who can take walks. But you, you know, remind me of Joey Votto in terms of being a young player who seems to have command of the strike zone. Where does that come from? It's just something that I've always grown up with. Uh, when I was growing up, I was a smaller guy. I was never one of the biggest guys in the field to the point where in uh, a middle school play, I was Bilbo Baggins in The Hobbit. Like, that's how small I was. I was a, <laughs> I was a small person. Um like to the teams would opposite shift me like in travel ball, they would move over to the other side of the field. Cause I never could pull the ball. So it was always <laughs> just one of those things where growing up, I had to learn how to hit. Uh, I never hit for power. I didn't get, in my opinion, I didn't really develop power until my junior year of college. So for me, it was always, I need to learn how to just be a pest at the plate. And for me, I think that was easier in terms of when I grew up, I didn't have much power. So I had to learn how to hit. And then once the power came, at least in my own mind, I knew how to hit. So then the power just came with it. So for me, it's just something that's always been really important to me. I hate striking out. It's like, to me, it's just the worst. I, I've never, I never feel like more angry than when I strike out. Now it doesn't mean I fear striking out because I don't think you can hit that way, but just in my own mind, I just hate it so much. Yeah. So I covered Tony Gwynn, you know, the hall of famer who never struck out. I remember the days when he would, the rare days that he would strike out twice. He wouldn't even speak after the game. He was so, he was the nicest (laughs) guy ever, but he would strike out twice and he'd be miserable. I know, you know, George Brett, I'm sure Mm -hmm. he was probably the same way with his approach Uh, was. So it sounds like that that was almost organic for you as a young kid, as a small kid. Uh, That was your way you got on base in part. You're not expanding the zone. 
Right. I have to do whatever I can to get on first base. So for me, that was always the mindset. And I know that like kind of the way baseball has shifted over the past few years, people will say, well, a double is more valuable than a walk or a single. So you should try to do that. But for me, like, I'm not worried about advanced numbers. I'm just worrying about being a good hitter. And if the advanced numbers follow that, that's great. If they don't, I still want to be able to, I want to be able to look in the mirror every night. And for me, like I have a different way of thinking being a good hitter is. So for me, like being a good hitter is having five quality plate appearances on a nightly basis. So sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't, but if I can, if I can go put my best foot forward five times every night, then I'll be able to, uh, you know, put my head to the pillow and be able to sleep that night. Give me the name of a hitter on another team that you love to watch hit. I think for me, it's Freddie Freeman. Uh, just watching how he, you know, takes care of his own business, so to speak. And just when we played the Dodgers last year, I mean, that lineup is so loaded that it's just like all-star MVP, 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 all-star, all-star. I mean, it's just incredible. So for a group of like young players, being able to watch that uh, for three games last year was just awesome. Just being able to see how they approach everything. And so for me, like he's kind of the guy that I key in on. It's like, what does he do to be able to be successful? And I think a lot of the things that I'm talking about, he does to, you know, at the peak of the sport. He's a tough, he's a tough out. He'll go the other way. He hits line drives. He's just a really good hitter. And for, for me, especially as a left-handed first baseman, I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. But then you mentioned Joey Votto. I mean, he's just unbelievable. Like, there's just so many great examples of hitters, especially at the first base position that I can just, I'm so lucky to just be able to watch them play. So inevitably you were at first base with Freddie. What was, uh, what was your conversation with him? Yeah, I don't really remember. Cause I think I was so starstruck at the time. Just, you know, just being like, I don't want to embarrass myself in front of him. You know, like, I don't want to be memorable. I just want to, you know, Hey, how you doing? <laughs> Different things like that. So I have no idea. Um, but yeah, it's, that's the fun part about playing first base is being able to talk to all these guys whenever they get to first. And then, you know, when they're first baseman too, when I get to first, it's, I just get to double dip with conversation. So it's unbelievable. Last one for you. You're on the front lines. A lot of the rule changes we're going to see this year, the bigger bases at first base, uh, defensive shifts, which in theory, we know from the the, the winter market, uh, left-handed hitters were getting paid more because there's an anticipation those numbers are going to jump. How much of an impact do you think these, uh, these rule changes are going to have on the product we see on the field? So, yeah, so I got to see all of these rule changes. So two years ago in double A, we did the no shift. Um, and for me, Personally, my batting average on balls in play was at a career high, and I think it was 10 points higher than what it was last year. So there's, there's a very small percentage of a jump, but there was a jump. But that was also on a half-year sample, so I don't know if that, like, how true those numbers were. Um, but I think that's just going to be interesting because you are going to see more athleticism in the infield. Guys are going to be making, you know, diving plays again. Not that they weren't, but there will be more opportunities for it. There's going to be more opportunities for offense, ground balls or hits again which that's where we were talking about a little analytics earlier. Like now, like hitting a hard ground ball can be a good thing now <laughs> because it has more of a chance to be a hit. So yeah, that'll be, it'll be interesting to see, especially with the best infielders in the world. Like it'll be interesting to be able to watch them use their athleticism again. Uh, the bigger bases as a first baseman, I like it because I feel like I'm not going to get stepped on at first. Because um, yeah. I, I actually did have to adjust that when I got to the big leagues last year was the smaller bases. I felt like I, you know, I had to change my route to first base just a little bit because it's like two inches on each side of the base, I believe. It's bigger. So I had to like figure out, okay, when I'm not looking at the base, I need to make sure that I'm still getting there. Um, and I think that'll be cool for base runners, especially because they'll be able to just be a little bit closer to second. And then the best rule is the pitch clock, in my opinion, because the game's just moving. 
the first week was tough in AAA last year, but once guys got used to it, I mean, it was just, it was the game just moves. And I think, I personally think the product gets better because guys don't have as much time to think. So you're just like doing it more consistently. So it'll be interesting. I think here when we start doing live at bats, we're going to put a pitch clock on so we can start getting used to it. And I hope they enforce it very strictly in spring training. So guys get used to it. Cause especially for some of the guys who've never done it, it is going to be an adjustment period um, with routines and different things like that. So, but it's, that's one rule that I'm really excited to see because the game, like from, from a fan perspective, which really that's who it's all about is the people that watch the game and pay to come watch. Like there'll be things happening all the time, which I think will be exciting. Yeah. The action per second uh, ratio is going to change dramatically. I agree with mm-hmm. you. It's going to be fun. Benny, thanks for doing this. It was great to talk with you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for having me. Bleacher tweets. Alrighty, Buster. Bleacher tweets for a Tuesday and a little bit of uh, interesting media news here. Derek Jeter set to join Fox Sports in the studio this Major League Baseball season. Derek Jeter and Alex Rodriguez are going to be reunited on the desk. I think that's kind of interesting. I, I, we've seen these two sort of get together, you know, in recent years. And I feel like their relationship on camera, you know, they, they might say that it's great, but I feel like there's some weirdness here. Hopefully they can clear it up, you know, just for that. Yeah. I remember when, uh, when, it, when Derek went on K rod mm-hmm. last year yeah. and by the way, long after he did K rod, other people did K rod. He did a lot of media, but it was long after he did the other ones. I got so many texts from people, you know, knowing that I know Alex and covered Derek, uh, wondering about what did you think of the body language between them? Uh, You know, on the uh, NBA TNT, uh, I think, uh, you know, sometimes you'll see Shaquille O'Neal and Charles Barkley butt heads, Mm -hmm. but you always get the feeling those guys are close friends. I agree with you. Everyone's going to be watching their body language, Sarah. Yeah, I'm actually kind of excited if there's a little bit of tension and awkwardness because I think it makes the dynamic way more interesting, especially because I think they will really be able to kind of go at each other and disagree. And I think it'll make it more interesting. Well, I, I and I'm curious to see if that happens because you know this, Charles, Shaquille O'Neal, O'Neal are not afraid to go at each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess it, it could go in the other way, too. Like, maybe they are going to be, like, super reserved and super buttoned up. And, like, I feel like those guys, I mean, at least Derek, doesn't doesn't really like to wade into controversy. So no. maybe he'll, he'll try and, you know, kind of have a facade. But maybe, you know, they'll sort of beat each other down a little bit. And then they'll get to, like, a new place with their relationship. And it could come out on the other side and be a little bit more fun. So Yeah, I'm curious about Derek and whether or not, because you mentioned, I mean, I, I remember having a conversation with him late in his career that I get asked about. I said, Derek, I get asked about journalism students all the time about what it's like to cover you. And he said, well, what do you tell him? I said, yeah, I said, you're intentionally boring. Like you don't want to create <laughs> headlines. And I'm curious to see now that he's older and, you know, he's got kids and and maybe he doesn't, he doesn't have to. Uh, you know, uh, try to limit the headlines the next day. Maybe he, because I know Derek has opinions, yeah, right? We I'm saw sure. those in the captain last year. He's got strong opinions. I'm wondering if he comes forward with them. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, you know, outside the confines of his own hagiography, I don't know uh, how it's going to go. So uh, we will certainly be watching. We, again, I mentioned earlier, only one tweet. Plenty of opportunities. We're going to go multiple times a week now. So send in your tweets, hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter, and you'll be, uh, you know, vaulted to the top of the pile if you follow me at CT Schwink or Sarah. Sarah, what's your Twitter handle? 
Um, I believe it's at Sarah K underscore sports. So really, you know, a great one. Really jazzy. Really. <laughs> You're so sporty, Sarah. That's what I was. I'm just so sporty. So <laughs> yeah, I had to change it for grad school and that Sarah's a very common name. So that was the mm. best I could come up with. <laughs> All right. Well, Ryan Sensen Sensenig at Slauncher writes in, uh, considering you grew up a Dodgers fan, wondering if you could shed any light on the reasoning behind the try MVPs of the 1981 World Series and how the heck Steve Garvey wasn't one of them with a 417 average in the series. Very specific yeah, question. So, yeah, so the 1981 World Series for me is near and dear to my heart. It was the first time any one of my, uh, you know, any time the Dodgers won a World Series uh, since I became a fan of them, I remember every bit of that, and that clearly was that whole World Series was truly a, a, a collective effort. Like they were down, uh, you know, in the, early in that World Series, they came back, uh, you know, with the in in the middle of it, and it did feel like you know Steve Yeager, uh, Pedro Guerrero, uh, a whole bunch of guys chipping in, and I suspect that what happened is because the way they do the MVP voting is in about you know, the sixth or seventh inning of what is is expected to be the final game. They hand out these cards to the broadcast booths, and it may literally be that they went with the Tri-MVPs. I think Ron Say was the other one uh, because those are the names that they got. And they're sitting there probably with, you know, three cards and three different names. And they're like, okay, well, there's not a consensus pick. And, uh, you know, but Garvey was terrific in that World Series. Interesting. The more you know. Thanks for the history lesson, Buster. Appreciate it. Sure. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets. If you want more history lessons from Buster or any of our guests, um, we do like to have uh, specific questions for our guests. And, you know, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know the rotation. You're going to hear Sarah Langs. You're going to hear Hembo. You're going to hear Ravi, Passin. Yeah, Passin I mean, joining us on Thursday. Right. Dave Schoenfield at some point, a personal favorite of mine. Jesse Rogers. Uh, Jess Mendoza. I mean, everyone's getting in on it. So if you have a question for those guys too, definitely uh, make a note of that and we will try and pass it along. That's it for today. My thanks to Alex, to Vinny, to Sarah, Tim, Sarah, and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA.